Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. You know, alcoholics, we say there are no victims, only volunteers. I mean, we choose to do that stuff. And now I choose to live a sober life. And it's amazing. Hello, my name's Bryony Gordon, and I want to welcome you to this special series of Mad World. And I say special series because it covers a subject I know all too well. Addiction. Addiction, recovery and mental health go hand in hand and as many of you may know, it's a journey I've been on and I'm still on. So for this year's Addiction Awareness Week, the Mad World team have joined forces with the amazing charities Action on Addiction and the Forward Trust to bring you a series of honest conversations about addiction, be that to alcohol, drugs, gambling or something else. We're slowly breaking down the stigma of discussing mental health, but addiction still sadly remains taboo, even though we will all know someone who's been touched by it which means I'm especially grateful to my guests on this series for having the courage to speak to me. Which brings me to our first guest. He's an incredible guitarist, songwriter, producer and all-round musical legend who founded the band Chic. He's also worked with some of the biggest names in the business, from Madonna to David Bowie to Diana Ross to Daft Punk and many, many more. I'm talking, of course, about the legendary... Niall Rogers. Oh, wow. Will I be in stereo? Is this like <laughs> some really cool... It's like ASMR. Yeah, right. right. We're doing you. Atmos. <laughs> Niall is the chief creative advisor at Abbey Road, no less. So I was so thrilled when he said he could squeeze in talking to me at the legendary music studios in between producing a new album for the Zootons. And I started by asking Niall the question I ask all of my guests here on Mad World. It is, of course... How are you, really? I'm fantastic. I just had my 69th birthday, which I cannot believe I'm almost 70 years old. This is ridiculous. But I feel great. I'm 27 years sober as of August 15th that just passed. I'm working with a band that's incredible. I've just finished working with, God, Ariana Grande, John Legend, Edina Menzel. It's, I mean... I, I was saying, how come this didn't happen to me at like 59? Why is it 69? <laughs> I'm like doing all these great projects. But I'm fortunate because I've been doing great projects all my life. So We're doing this interview in Abbey Road Studios, yes. which of course is the iconic. I can look out the window and see people taking pictures of it. And there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's where the Beatles yeah. sort of made. And in many ways, your, ha- your 
your hands, your, well, yes, your hands from your guitar. And brain. Your, and brain <laughs> are, I would say, more all over modern music than the Beatles. You know, you were sort of like oh, accidentally oh, invented oh, you hip-hop. Flatterer, you. Oh, but you've you worked fl- with, oh. I mean, I was going to say, you worked with David Bowie, Madonna, Lady Gaga, Mick Jagger, Diana Ross. Okay, 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 okay got it. <laughs> Just in case, you know, and then, uh, and then. That funk. Uh, oh, and last night I was, I was dancing around my kitchen singing uh, Get Lucky and my daughter, who's eight, was going, Mom, what is that song? And I played it and she said, you don't sound like anything like that song, Mom. But anyway, but so you are this absolute legend and we're so grateful to have you on Mad World. You mentioned there, 27 years sober. Amazing. Amazing. August the 15th. My sobriety date is August the 27th. Wow. But I haven't got 27 years. That's okay. It, well, we have 27 days. It's fantastic. So I wanted to talk to you about sobriety, addiction. You've spoken really openly about it. I was obviously doing my research, reading loads of interviews with you. Mm-hmm. And what really struck me in all the interviews was there was this sort of mythologizing of the Mm -hmm. addiction, you know, and the glamorizing that you get obviously in rock and roll and, well, disco and all of the rest. And all the journalists were sort of referring to your days in the the restrooms at Studio 54 or, you know, three-day benders with Grace Jones or, you know, and it was like, you can, can sound really kind of almost exciting. It was. Um, it was, of course, in bits. <laughs> Come on, but then I, I went and bought your, your autobiography mm-hmm. and I read it. It made me cry in bits, actually. And you, you, don't, you don't sugarcoat it at all. No. There's not, you know, you don't make it look very glamorous. Can we, can we go way back to the beginning? Sure. When you were a boy, little boy growing up in New York and yeah. you had, you know, your mum was, what, 14 when she had Yeah, you? when she was... The first time she had sex, uh, she fell pregnant. She was 13 years old, and that was around Christmas time, and I was born nine months later in September. Okay. And here we are 69 years later. I can't. Ah! You don't look a day over. Over 68. <laughs> but, but also your mom, you were obviously you loved each other so much, but yeah. she was a heroin addict. Exactly. So I, I was around... Um, drugs and addiction my entire life. Some of my earliest memories when I became self-aware was hearing the word junkie. And I didn't even know what that meant. It actually sounded sort of romantic in a way. I think in my book, I I say, because this is what I remembered as a kid, I thought it was just people who hoarded junk. I thought it was people who collected stuff that was not really collectible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it took a while before I learned that junkies were heroin addicts and also that a lot of the junkies around that were in my life also were dying at a higher rate than just regular people. But I have to say um, I was the beneficiary of these wonderful, cool, sort of jazzy, arty, bohemian junkies because they were very cool people. They were intellectuals and they introduced me to art and, you know, at a very early age. A lot of people don't believe this, but it's completely true. When I was six, six and a half years old, the first book I read was Treasure Island. The second book I read was Moby Dick. Try and read Moby Dick now. Wow. <laughs> you will be. I mean, so there were a gazillion polysyllabic words that I didn't quite understand, nor could I pronounce them. But 
I got the gist of it. And I was so fortunate to be around these exciting personalities. Now, the reality is that it taught me about escapism because I was a very, very lonely, sad child. And if it weren't for the fact that adults liked me, I wouldn't have really had any friends because my family were nomadic. Uh, because they were heroin addicts, uh, they had a problem with money and finance, so we moved around from place to place to place. I never had a solid upbringing until I could finally control my own destiny, which was around 15, 16 years old. You mentioned that they were junkies, but they were also fascinating and introduced you to so much culture. I remember reading something once um, from the sister of an addict and he had died and she said that we only see addicts as addicts when actually that's one part of their lives and there are so many other things, you know, and that's what really comes across in your book and when you talk about it is that, you know, it's it's almost an incidental that your mother... Right, is a heroin addict, right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one, one of the coolest things, uh, I talk about this friend of my family named Harold, and I say he was the finest gentleman junkie I've ever known. We went to see Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, and it was an Alfred Hitchcock film festival. At this point, this was an an old film, um, and we went to see Strangers on a Train, and I remember they were just so cool, everything about them, the way they spoke, even though it was incredibly slow like that. After we uh, left the theater... He was just so mesmerized with what he had just seen. And he said to me, Pud, which is my nickname, short for Pudding Pie. He says, Pud, Hitchcock is a bitchcock. <laughs> and it was just so cool to me. I was like, wow, like, how could you even think like that? It was all, everything was poetic and rhymed. It was cool. It was the precursor to hip hop. It was uh, spoken word poetry. You, you know, I would come home. Uh, many a day and find, you know, people who were movie stars at our house, you know, because a lot of times if you're a heroin addict, you sort of become a heroin dealer. It was colorful. And I realized that when I was in pain uh, around 11 years old, uh, it was just really tough always being the new kid in class and the new kid in the neighborhood. And we moved to the West Coast, or I moved to the West Coast with my grandparents, and the kids were really tough. It was gangs, and and because of my New York accent, you know, I just stood out like a sore thumb, and um, everybody picked on me. And I remember uh, I was with one kid who sort of was my protector, and the very first time I drank... Um, and I sniffed glue that day. So we were drinking and sniffing glue, and I did it to excess. And I remember this so clearly as if it were yesterday. I was sniffing the glue, and he was teaching me how to do it. And I remember the last words before I passed out was, he says, oh, one thing I forgot to tell you, when you can't feel the bag on your face, you have to stop. And I kept thinking, I haven't been able to feel the bag for about five minutes now. And it it passed right out. And when uh, he revived me or I came to, I went, wow, let's do that again. I should have known right then that I was on the course to become an addict uh, or that I was genetically programmed or something. But uh, 
here I almost died the first time and wanted to do it again. How old were you? Eleven. Eleven. It's so interesting, though, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter what your drug is or your if you're an alcoholic or an addict. It's the same thing. The first, usually, the first time you've done it, you you unbeknownst. I remember the first time I drank alcohol. I threw up. I had to be. I blacked out. I had to be like cartage off. Yeah. You know, I was like and resuscitate and like revive. Right. Right. And the next weekend, I was like, "Can we do this again?" Like right. it's nuts. It's crazy, right? But like you, right back when you were five years old. Yeah. So you were born. You had asthma. Right. And you're sent off to this like convalescence boys' home, correct? Correct. Just basically like an institution to get better. Yes. And every night you lie awake, terrified of going to sleep because you can hear the caretaker going around the room abusing the other boys. The children, yes. And you write about how you've had a terror of the dark ever since. Absolutely. You were terrified of going to sleep and yet in your addiction you were basically chasing death. Right. And I read that and I just thought the resonance there was like... It was huge, you know. And can we? Did, when you discovered glue, dr- drugs, alcohol, what did it feel like to you? Because we we know the bad. We know that drugs are bad. We know that alcohol in excess is bad. But to try and explain how people become hooked in and what it and, and the effect and what it does for you and how it kind of gets rid of so much of that pain and that fear. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is in my normal state. I was aware of my emotions. I was aware of the loneliness. I was aware of the fact that I was the odd person out. There's also a really horrible byproduct of racism in America, colorism. Mm -hmm. So in the black community, uh, in my family, I'm the only one who's chocolate-colored. Everyone else is light-skinned. My mom is light-skinned, and there's a whole reason for that, and... You know, I always say, like, you know, if President Obama's mother wasn't white, he would definitely have never gotten to be president. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, that's how it is in America. It's um, an acceptable form of blackness. Right, exactly. Okay, yeah. And, you know, so I was not um, light enough, which is weird. So when all of a sudden black became beautiful, when I was around, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, and it was like, black is beautiful— then my name, Niall, which I had avoided, I used to use my middle name, which is Gregory, because there was no one named Niall. Like, in England, you might meet people named Niall, but they spell it N-I-A-L-L or something like that. Uh, but I was spelled exactly like the river, you know. So I came from uh, a family with uh, these biblical names. So my father is Niall, his brother is Demetrius, and my aunt was Naomi. It was like, you know, come on, guys. So I was really isolated, even though I was around people. But once I took that first drink, which also was with sniffing glue, you know, the combined effect was, wow, <laughs> everybody is beautiful. They like me. And it was still, it was just me and one other guy. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, now I'm walking down the street and people going, hey, man, how you doing? Now, how you doing? Okay, okay, everything is cool. I, I just looked at the world differently. Somehow, I didn't feel the pain. I didn't feel the isolation. And I remember I became very outgoing and it was the antithesis of my normal personality which is 
to be very, very shy. The reason why I'm so outgoing now is because I learned how to be that way. But normally, I'm still a shy person. And it's funny that you talked about my fear of the dark. I'm 69 years old. And last night, I, I sleep with the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I got better. <laughs> it's like that bit. I'm just personally on a level, like I'm 41 years old and I slept with the lights on last night. <laughs> and I remember it's that thing where you think you're like a freak and a weirdo right. for for being a grown-up who sleeps with the light on. Right. And then you get sober and you meet all these other freaks <laughs> right. and realize you're not a freak at all. Yeah. You're just a person who has this like illness and it stays with you. you well, know? because I, I had this fear of the unknown because of my poor eyesight, I couldn't see. So with the light on in the room, at least I'm not afraid of figures that, you know, I, I mean, come, come on, your imagination is just, it's just all over the place. And I would imagine things that would coincide with my natural fear. So even though there was nothing in the room, I believe there was something in the room or somebody in the room or somebody about to come into the room. But at least if I could see, I'd always feel like I had a chance of escaping. And that juvenile thing you you see, I'm certainly no longer a child, um, but that fear, it's I guess it's sort of primal I, at this point. It's it's like, you know, uh, I, I I don't really know. I can, you know, try and trace back to it. I, I believe that it all happened at the convalescent home because that's my earliest memories, and I've had this problem ever since. But I do sleep well with the light on uh you can see i'm here ready to go you look um, very I've, I've been up fresh. since yeah i've been up since 7 a.m i slept only like four hours last night but that's normal for me and it's been that way since i was a child really oh yeah what were you doing till my maths is terrible two okay. in the morning how do you think i got all those records done okay because i'm writing and i'm composing all night i'm thinking honestly just as I was on my way over here, I was about to walk out the door and I'm working with the Dina Menzel now. And I was just about to leave the room and I had an idea and I ran to my, <laughs> my voice recorder and started singing the song. I'm like, going, this, is, you know, this is how the hook should go. And that's why I got here a little late. I'm always composing. I have this continuous uh, stream of free-floating ideas all the time. And... Um, it's hard to turn it off. I can imagine. Oh, I'm, I'm just listening to you. I'm excited to. I, lo I love Adina Menzel. Oh, she's wonderful. As the mother of an eight-year-old daughter, <laughs> she is the soundtrack to our life. Right. But she'd probably be the soundtrack to my life even without an eight-year-old daughter. She's, a, she's an amazing woman. Um. So, so, so you have this fear of the dark and you take to drink and drugs. Yes. Quite like a duck to water, as we say yeah, in yeah, the UK. Yeah. Uh, but you've also, I mean, you hit on it there. You've managed to have this, like, incredible career. You know, you founded Chic. I mean, I named all of the people that you've produced and written songs for. You wrote We Are Family. I'm not going to burst yeah. into song now because I can't <laughs> sing. Also, I imagine in that scene and in that industry, drink and drugs are pretty normal, right? Yeah. Oh, it's everyday stuff. Yeah. It's funny how... When I look back upon my life and my career, I'm, I'm really thankful 
before I became the boss, as they say, it's funny when I walk, you're working with my band today, the Zootons, I love how they walk in and go, okay, boss, what are we doing now? Like, <laughs> I'm not the boss. I you work, are the boss. I work for you guys. You're the chief, um, aren't you the chief creative officer? Yes, I am. Road. Yes, I am. Big deal, big deal. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Boss. I agree, um, boss now for the rest of this interview. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's you, you know, before that, I had this incredible work ethic. I mean, I I worked, my first real job was with Sesame Street. I was like 19 years old. And because I was such a proficient music reader, which guitarists typically are notoriously bad music readers because most guitarists learn from ear training. They just play and they don't quite understand music theory the way that I understood it because I paid attention in class uh, when it came to music, that was part of the standardized curriculum at that time in America. Those days are long gone. But, um, you know, that was something that I also took to like a duck to water. Music was something that I loved. It was always around me as a child. My earliest memories are of music. I mean, think my first birthday that I can remember. Either I was five or six. I believe I was six because right after that, I had my first Holy Communion. I was baptized as a Catholic. And for my sixth birthday, I got uh, Elvis Presley's blue suede shoes as a present, as a birthday present. I got the 45 record disc. And then my grandmother gave me a pair of blue suede shoes to go along with it. So in my mind, I thought that music and fashion and clothing were attached. I thought that every time you got a record, you got an article of clothing and because they were blue suede it was like how cool is this like i'm a reflection of this yeah you, you know you're a kid so you have a kid's mind and mine was overactive and i got the blue suede shoes and i was in catholic school and i couldn't believe it our colors were navy blue and gold so when i got my holy communion i had on blue suede shoes it was like like, I was the coolest dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it almost was like predestined. And my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, she was a Lindy Hopper. So she was, you know, from that cool school of, you know, these black women who were just highly educated and they were, as we used to say, large and in charge. I mean, they. she ran her own business, and it was incredible, um, the intellectual power she had and, and just her fashion sense and all of this stuff that I inherited. But she was also a heavy, heavy drinker. And um, we had one of those really cute, portable... I wasn't portable, but it was a bar that was basically a keg, you know, like a, a rum keg, and it split in the middle, and it opened up into this beautiful bar with, you know, champagne flutes on one side and highball glasses and the whole thing, and, you know, and, and I used to be her bartender, and she would have me serve her drinks. So, you know, now that I think back upon it, I was always around this stuff. I was around booze. I was around heroin my my parents used to um i know young people will find this funny but when i was younger marijuana used to have seeds and so my parents would actually have me seed the the marijuana separate the seeds from 
from the smokable pot. And uh, and that was my job. It was like, you know, seven or eight years old. Like, how could that not seem sexy and attractive to you? And my parents, my parents allowed me to smoke just like Italian parents allow their kids to drink. I, first time I spent Christmas in Italy, I couldn't believe it. Like, Everybody was drunk, <laughs> like so at, how, by, at noon. <laughs> so how were you, How old were you when you started smoking? I started smoking around eleven as well. Uh, tobacco, tobacco, and then pot came right after. Yeah, okay, of course. <laughs> um, you know, like it's it, predestined. You, you just said that you predestined. Yeah. I mean, that sums it up. You were yeah. always going to. You were always on the course to to this kind of music, but also drugs and alcohol. Oh yeah, and partying, and 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 at least to try it. But I didn't know that I was an addict. As a matter of fact. Once I realized that my parents were addicts, I sort of promised myself that I wouldn't become an addict. And I had uh, ground rules. Mm -hmm. And my ground rules were that an alcoholic only drank brown liquor. Mm -hmm. So as long as I didn't drink brown liquor, I was not an alcoholic. And I remember uh, the day... The last drink I ever had, the very last drink, was straight scotch. And I went, wow, this is amazing. All these years, I could have been drinking this. And that's when, uh, you know, that mixed with other wacky incidents that particular night made me realize that I had not only broken my own rules, but I also was bordering on... um, uh, I don't like to use the word crazy, but I had two realities. I had the reality of when I was high and drunk. Then I had the reality of when I when the cobwebs were clear, and I go, "Really, I did that? Mm-hmm. Like I was up drinking brown liquor last night because I had cleaned out the vodka and the gin and the champagne and the." white wine or anything that was drinkable well that was not what i considered being an alcoholic and then it was so clearly defined by that love of that brown stuff that i drank i was like wow this is so amazing and almost in a second that along with this whole cocaine incident it was my first and only time of having cocaine psychosis um just those two things it was actually three things. It was the brown liquor, cocaine psychosis, and the fact that earlier that evening or the day before, I had gone out and played uh, at a nightclub and everybody was going crazy. I was doing all these tricks, playing behind my head like Hendrix, behind my back. Crowd was going bananas and I thought I was amazing. Uh, little did I know that the artist that I was playing with recorded everything. And the next day when I got to his loft, he said, hey, man, you want to hear what you played last night? And I was at this point, of course, I had a hangover, but I wasn't drunk. And he played it and I was like, oh, my God. So all of these things reflected the real reality. It was terrible. Right. Well, it wasn't terrible. No, of course. Sorry. 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 Not not Mel Rogers. No, no. It just wasn't (laughs) what I thought. And I thought it was amazing It was less than amazing, but it wasn't terrible because actually people have written me 
about that night, which is, you know, now because of social media. So people have written me and said, oh, my God, I remember the first time I saw you play, and it was so awesome. I was like, oh, now I'm sober. I guess maybe it was on. go back a bit to before yeah, we got sorry, sober. Sorry. Because the other thing I think you said that was really interesting, you had these ground rules, but also that you had a work ethic. And I think one of the things people misunderstand about addicts and alcoholics is they're actually often perfectionists. Oh, they're yeah. seeking validation through anything. And that includes work, right? That's probably it. Yeah. So you have this other layer of denial, which is that you work hard, you're successful. How could you be an addict or right. an alcoholic, right? right. Yeah. Do you know how many times, I, I think I talk about this in the, in the book, how many times I went directly from partying and drinking and would, like, get to the recording studio and lie on the floor or lie on the couch like we're sitting here and wait for my artists to come in. And as soon as they'd walk in the door, I remember with Duran Duran, I'd just wake up and ready to go. Even though five minutes before I felt like the world was going to end. I was so hungover. I mean, you know that thing. Mm -hmm. We call it praying to the porcelain god. You're like over the toilet, vomiting. Oh, I'll never drink again. I swear if I just live through this night, I will never, ever drink again. And the next afternoon, you're going, oh, well. Maybe I'll have a drink. Yeah, that'll that'll take away the headache. That'll take away, yeah, just a little drink, you know. And, And the thing is, is that alcoholics and addicts all around the world do the same thing. It's it's incredible. I mean, we have these horrible hangovers and somebody tells you, oh, you know, the way to get rid of a hangover is just have a couple of drinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, And we do it. We're going like, wait a minute. No, that's what got me in this mess. I'm like in the bathroom and vomiting everywhere. And, and next thing you know, I, uh, oh my God, that vicious cycle. I remember one night I was out with, uh, I think it was Robert Downey Jr. and a bunch of movie stars and people. It was this whole clique of exciting people that were in my life. And I remember at the end of the night, I I don't know how I did it, but I drove home. You know, I've never, ever been busted for, you guys call it drink driving here, but we're drunk driving. We are drunk when we're cops or, you know, DWI driving while intoxicated. So because I was a New Yorker, the police knew me and I was really popular because the music was so popular at that time. So I never got arrested. I never even got a ticket. As a matter of fact, the one time that the cop stopped me and I had coke-encrusted nostrils, the cop took a picture of me, took a Polaroid, and he said, you need to, to... to keep this and take a look at yourself. And he actually called my manager and had my manager come and get me instead of arresting me. You know, and you also hear about, you know, addicts who have car wrecks and then the people in the car with them die, but they walk out of the car. And like, you know, it's like, how do we have that kind of good luck in the midst of this misery and suffering in a weird way? It's, it's, it's strange. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. I've never had an, uh, a car accident while I was driving. None, none of that bad stuff ever happened to me. So that probably prolonged my drinking. And what made me stop was not some horrible incident. It was not 
killing a person or having an accident. It was the fact that I realized it was two separate realities, and that was so clear to me. The brown liquor, the cocaine psychosis, and the fact that I thought that I was playing great and it was horrible and that I had the ability to let this poor artist down was just everything came crashing to a halt at at one moment. It was, I actually talk about this in the positive side of my life. I talk about, you know, alignment that, you know, you don't get hit records because your songs are great. Because I think, hell, a lot of my songs are great, but they don't become hit records. It's because of this alignment that happens outside of you. It's because the promotion team works. It's because the people at the radio station like it. And all of a sudden, this thing happens that you have no control over. And it's just this alignment of things that all of a sudden, the whole world is listening to We Are Family or listening to Get Lucky or listening to... I, I, I've got a bunch of them. Um, those things were outside of me. I, I, I still had the same work ethic and the same creative touch with records that were complete failures. So I can't explain any of this stuff really effectively, which is why I never give any advice because somehow I would land on my feet it's my my therapist used to call it you know now you're falling forward through life because <laughs> you were definitely not walking you are falling but somehow you happen to fall in the right spot because man I was I really whew, the amount of alcohol and drugs that I could consume in one night you should um, be dead Oh, oh, I did. And, you know, I did die. Okay, so we talk about you're being looked after. Like when you talk about falling forward, that you, you know, you you talk about this story of how you got in a lift to go and you hit the Can You you tell the story. So I lived on the 28th floor. And in America, we um, so unlike Europe and, and this side of the pond, We don't call the ground floor the ground floor. We say it, but we call it the first floor. So I lived on the 28th floor. And typically because people have uh, triskaidekaphobia, a lot of people in America, so they leave out the 13th floor. And the 14th floor is actually really the 13th floor. So you get in in the elevator, the lift, and... It goes 1 through 12, and then the next floor is 14. So all the even numbers are on one side, and all the odd numbers are on the other side. And I lived on the 28th floor in a building that had 31 floors. So normally when I get in the elevator, I push the next to the last button at the top of the elevator, at the top of the panel. Some reason, I pushed 14. And when I got to 14, I fell out of the elevator onto the landing and my heart had stopped. And it was the typical alcoholic death where you choke on your own vomit and, you know, like, mm-hmm. like you know, it was like the, the normal, the, you know, the normal old alcoholic yeah. death, right? You know, Criminal garden, uh, alcoholic yeah, death. Yeah. Just, yeah, nothing special, nothing spectacular. So I fall out of the elevator and I choke on my vomit. And, um, and it was just by chance that the the uh, maintenance crew in my building 
had arrived on the 14th floor because the way that they would empty the garbage is they start at the top, which makes sense. And then they start at the top, they empty the garbage, and they go down to the next floor. So they start at 31 and then go to 30 and so on and so forth. And had I gone to 28, they would have never found me because it was like 6 or 7 in the morning. I had been at an after-hours club, so people weren't even going to work yet because that would happen an hour later. So I fall out on the 14th floor, and they find me dead. And um, they try to revive me. Now, I assume the maintenance guys in my building probably weren't doing (laughs) mouth-to-mouth. They may not have even understood chest compressions, but they were... They probably did shake me or something because I I actually never really talked to my staff. And if I did, I don't remember it. But I do remember the doctors telling me when I finally came to, the hospital was conveniently just one block away. And uh, they called the emergency medical workers and they were able to revive me, but every time they revived me, my I would flatline. My heart would stop. They now have a word uh, for it in America, and they call it Len Bias Syndrome because there was a famous new basketball prodigy who was running down the basketball court and dropped dead right on the court. And he had the same thing. He just took one hit of Coke or two hits of Coke. And um, what happens is that your heart... You don't have a heart attack, but your heart gets confused. The cocaine sends a signal to your heart, and it doesn't know whether to contract or expand or whatever, and so it just stops. And that's what happened. My heart kept stopping because it was getting this weird signal from the cocaine. And they would start my heart, and it would get the signal again and stop and start and stop. And when when I finally was revived, the doctor told me, Uh, And I always get this story a little bit wrong. I always say that my heart stopped eight times, but that's not true. It stopped seven times because on the eighth time, they were actually filling out my death certificate because they had done everything, you know, with the paddle, like clear with the paddles and the whole thing and the adrenaline in the heart. and, And because of the cocaine sending the signal, I guess it was short circuiting whatever techniques they were trying. And, um, and, and the doctor said, um, that they were filling out the death certificate and one of the orderlies said, hey, doc, we got a live one here. And the doctor said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, this guy's heart's going. And he said, my heart just started again by itself. Now, you got to remember, this is the doctor telling me the story because I don't remember anything. To me, I just drove home <laughs> and got in the elevator and the next thing you know, I woke up and there's fluorescent lights over his head and I'm going, who the hell redecorated my apartment last night? He explained it to me, and he told me how hard they worked to keep me alive. And then he explained to me the drama of you know, the whole thing. Like, I have no memory of it. So this is all secondhand. But he was very passionate about telling me how hard they worked to save my life. And I really need to change my ways. And I think that I'm... a kind and considerate and compassionate person so i did stop for two weeks right (laughs) i remember it was exactly two weeks like on the 14th day i was like "Eh." and um feeling a bit better 
Yeah, a lot better after two weeks uh, because I I didn't know how to live without it. I didn't. Now all of a sudden the fear comes back and I'm walking through the world. I'm not quite the same in the studio. It's like now I'm, you know, overly judging myself and all of that stuff that seemed to go away. Whenever you see old pictures of me in the recording studio, there's always a bottle of beer in my hand. I mean, he's like, I can't find a picture of me without like a bottle, you know, like beer or, or something or a drink. It's just a miracle to me. I had that alignment of incidents that one night because I had I had tried to stop so many times. Like, like I remember saying, oh, yeah, stopping is easy. It's just staying stopped. That's hard. Mm. <laughs> Stopping is really easy. You're on the toilet. Uh, you do it every morning. Uh, right. You wait, oh, <laughs> man. I'm never, I'm never, ever, do, never, ever, ever. Uh, um, I'm, that's it. I stop. I quit. And next thing you know, you're doing it again. Mm. So the day that I stopped, I stayed stopped. So that's the only day that counts to me. Not all those other times that I tried to stop. It was that day with the brown liquor. Never, ever had a drink again. Never went back. Never what they called slipping or falling off or any of that stuff or relapsing. Never, ever happened because the clarity of the stoppage, (laughs) and it wasn't the heart because that was at least eight years before. You know, I I can't really tell at this point. Um, In my book, I can tell because I went back and, you know, called the doctors and I got the research and, you know, and... And so I know everything was documented really well. Uh, But in my memory, um, it was years from the time that my heart stopped that night until the day that I actually quit. You know, like I made up my mind to quit. So that was the 15th of August, what, 1994? Okay. Yeah. And what, and in the book, you talk about how you'd read a piece or you heard that Keith Richards had got sober. Yeah. And you thought, if um, Keith Richards can get sober. You know, so Keith and I, we live in, in Connecticut. Our two towns are right next to each other. And those days, uh, I would see Keith in the neighborhood quite a bit. And his wife, Patty, they, they, they were really cool. And my girlfriend at the time is a phenomenal interior decorator. So she did their apartment in New York. And, you know, so we're, we're like a, we're relatively close. And so I remember... On my way to New York to go to the rehab, uh, there was a magazine on the plane that talked about Keith Richards. He called it getting sober because he had just given up heroin. But I looked at it as, you know, completely giving up everything. So I read this article and I was like, wow, man, how many nights have I hung with Keith? And we were like just doing the same thing. And... And I had so much respect for him. I thought, wow, I I know Keith. So this is a thing that I know you'll recognize. When you're an addict or an alcoholic and you think somebody else is bad, you know they're really like, you know, like way out there. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) like I used to think Keith Richards was like, like in like a super alcoholic compared to me, right? I thought I was like just—I didn't even think I was an alcoholic. So I thought, man, if this guy can give it up, I know I could give it up. So I read that article and I was so moved by his, 
emotions because basically what he said was he he thought you know as much as he loved heroin um he knew that it was impinging upon his ability to create music and he had to choose between these two great loves like i love getting high but i love music more <laughs> and and that's what had happened to me that night you know that was part of the the triad, uh, you know, the three incidents, the brown liquor, the coke, and the playing. and You'd become more drugs than music. Right. It was like, you know, I could see that my playing was uh, affected, and, and I knew that, and Keith had explained it to me perfectly. The funny part, which I know is what you're getting at, is so I went to a drug rehab, and I was there for eight months. Like, nobody knew where I was. I was just, like, gone from the scene. And... The day I check out of the hospital, I was going to get um, takeaway food. And I walk in, and the manager of the restaurant was accustomed to Keith Richards coming there and me and all sorts of other people who were drug addicts and partying. And I think that you couldn't even own a nightclub or a restaurant in New York if you weren't part of that scene. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't drink or drug, you certainly allowed people to do it because that's just what the world was. So I walk in. As soon as I walk in, the major D says to me, oh, hey, man, a friend of yours uh, wants to talk to you. And it was Keith Richards calling. <laughs> he was looking for Coke. <laughs> and he says, he says to me, uh, hey, mate, you got a bump? And I was like, oh, what are you? Dude, I got sober. I was all inspired by you. And now the day I get out eight months later, you're asking me for a bump, so obviously it didn't last long with you. <laughs> well, it's hard. <laughs> Getting sober is hard, isn't it, Niall? I mean, that's that's why rehabs exist. <laughs> yeah, but it was just so ironic that, you know, this guy that I was holding up is like, oh, my God, you know, Keith did it. And the first person, I mean, I've had all sorts of wacky, ironic things like that all throughout my life so talking about like what are, you're a musician and your whole life you've stood up on stage and you've created with alcohol and drugs at your side right and you come out of rehab eight months sober and clean what is it like doing music sober clean and sober and like how tell me because you you do you have spoken about it the sort of how close you came to can you talk us So the very first night that I played in front of people without a drink or a drug, and once again, it was like I was forced into a situation. So a good friend of mine had dropped dead on the dance floor at a nightclub that we used to all frequent. And this guy never had a drink or a drug in his life. He was totally sober. But he had an aneurysm, and basically a blood vessel burst in his brain, and he dropped dead right on the dance floor of this club that we all used to go party at. And he was working with Paul Simon at the time, who had a musical on Broadway. So Paul actually met him through me. Um, and so we all showed up at this place, and I put together a band to pay tribute to him. And, you know, a lot of stars were there, and... You know, people hadn't seen me for a while, but nobody really made a big deal out of it. It was just, hey, Nile may have been away gigging or making records. But in my mind, I was terrified because I hadn't played sober as a professional um, 
since the beginning of Chic, which was in like 1977. Um, so now this is 1994. And we play the first song, and I was loaded with doubt, but we sounded incredible. <laughs> we sounded so good. And I remember after the very first song, screaming out to the audience. Now here we're playing at a, like a memorial service, and I screamed out, I belong out here! And nobody knew what the hell I was talking about because I was loaded with so much doubt in my head. I kept thinking that I can't do this sober because I'm afraid of people, I'm shy, and I just let loose with this stupid thing. Normally it's like, you know, it was a memorial, let's hear from my brother Briz, you know, we love him, man, we miss you, whatever. But it wasn't anything like that. It was like, I belong out here. It was like all about me all of a sudden. And it was weird because I was so happy that not only did I play well, but I played really well. And so did the rest of the band. It was incredible. It was just so damn good. And that was when my partner, Bernard Edwards, who was at that point my ex-partner, we decided we need to do this. Only us two together sound like that. And, you know, and we decided to kiss and make up and, you know, and take another shot at doing Chic. And um, it, it was just so weird and so rewarding. Um, and from that moment on, I knew that I could play sober and I could actually experience real feelings. Like I just put up on my Instagram yesterday, the end of a concert. Um, I, I don't remember what town it was in, but it was in the north somewhere. And I just remember at the end of the concert being so happy to be on stage in front of people and sober and have the ability to play it at my age and still rock the house and danced like crazy and roller skate and blah, blah, blah. You know, and just like, I, I feel like a teenager when I'm on stage. I put out more energy at 69 than I did when I was 19. When I was with Sesame Street, I played in the orchestra pit. Nobody even saw me. It was like, I love it down here. But now I have to be the front guy because I'm the only one who knows the story. So I have to talk to the people. I, I'm I'm honored. I'm thankful I'm grateful, I'm blessed to have had this great life. And now it continues. It's amazing. And you do belong here. I do belong here. <laughs> do you know the first song I danced sober to, I was ever able to dance sober to after I got sober was Get Lucky. Really? Oh. And that meant a lot because it's, I'm not a singer, but you're like, how will I be able to go out? You know, how will I be able to do this? You know, when we, we play that song and, um, and I, I tell it from my point of view, I can't speak for Pharrell. I can't speak for Daft Punk. And I just say, you know, I feel like the luckiest person in the world because I get to do this. I mean, not only do I get paid well, but I get paid well in emotion and I feel like instead of being afraid of, you know, 
50, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 people, I look out there and I see 100,000 friends. Mm. You know, I really do. I, I'm not afraid. Um, I, I just, I picture them as family, as people that I love and that people who love me back. And, you know, or else why the hell are you going to stand there? <laughs> Especially mm. the other day, we were all like in the pouring rain. Was it in Margate? No, no, no. No. This was our last gig. It was um, Scotland. Glasgow. Glasgow. Right. And so we're in Glasgow and it's like pouring rain, pouring, pouring, pouring rain. Thousands and thousands of people. And they were just so happy. And so was I. And my my road crew kept telling me, don't go beyond the red line or you'll get you know, soaked and you could slip and fall off the stage. And of course I went beyond the red line because I wanted to be as close to the people as possible. And I'm like going, oh my God, I can get electrocuted. But this is the life I've chosen. You know, as we say, you know, alcoholics, we say there are no victims, only volunteers. I mean, we choose to do that stuff. And now I choose to live a sober life. And it's amazing. The the emotions now that I feel are real to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though, yes, I still sleep with the lights on because I don't want to imagine weird things because at least I take my glasses off. Mm-hmm. So the images are a little fuzzy. But, um, you know, it's I, I do believe that I'm looking at the real world now. Mm. Thank you so much, Nile Rogers. You are a fucking legend. <laughs> Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to read what you think about the shows and see your guest suggestions too. The Telegraph also let me loose in the paper. So if you'd like to hear more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. This series was produced by the legendary Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support. Action on Addiction, who along with the Forward Trust have helped us put together this series, are a UK charity providing support to people who need rehab, as well as a wealth of resources for those battling addiction issues. They can be found at www.actiononaddiction.org.uk. For honest information about drugs and help and advice in the UK, head to www.talktofrank.com or call 0300 123 6600. Wearewithyou.org.uk are a charity who offer free confidential support to people in England and Scotland who have issues with drugs and alcohol. For information in Northern Ireland, go to services.drugsandalcoholni.info. In Wales, you can contact Dan247 at dan247.org.uk. If you're a child of an alcoholic, you can get advice and support from NACOA for free on 0800 358 3456. And importantly, please remember this, you are not alone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 